Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing there? It is David. It is the podcast. It is a a strange one because I'm coming to you from Morocco, where I am shooting a new documentary. But I want to talk about all sorts of things. We're going to have a Brexit hit, obviously, given what happened on Saturday. We're then going to talk about, because I'm in the Arab world, because I've spent some time the last 24 hours discussing with the Moroccan crew, Syria, the Kurds, the future of the Arab world... We're going to actually talk about what is happening in Syria, what the implications are for geopolitics, and what the implications are for the United States' stated position of the global policeman. So that's what we're going to talk about, big geopolitical stuff coming direct from Morocco. And But of course, I have, as always with me, on the line all the way from Exotics to Lorgan. Johnny Davis, how are you, mate? How are you, Mac? How's it going? Yeah, I'm baking here under the Stilorgan sun. How's it going out there in Morocco? I am in very good form. You, you will. I've Jesus. I was watching the rugby yesterday. Jesus, you know, CBC Monkstown will beat Ireland at this stage. <laughs> I think that might be a bit unfair on the town. <laughs> what was it like at home? Because I was actually watching the rugby on Twitter. It's not quite the same. Right thing. in this tiny no, in this tiny Berber village, the second highest peak in Africa. Oh, right. And, uh, of course, the uh, the crew had no idea why the presenter was going, ah, Jesus Christ! <laughs> um, <laughs> but was yeah. it really bad? Was it on, on, it was on dreadful, TV? Yeah, I, 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 to be honest, um, I didn't watch it all because I was out watching a, a camogie final, um, which actually was more exciting, to be honest, at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was dreadful. But were the All Blacks just much, much better than us? Absolutely. It was a different league altogether. Like, it really was. You know, they just had their game plan down and they just absolutely bulldozed us out of it. You know, it's funny, when you're out in this part of the world, you kind of switch off completely. And I was talking to this uh, Berber uh, locations guy yesterday and I was trying to explain to him rugby. And he just looked at me very perplexed. He was like, listen, man, whatever, whatever. (laughs) They didn't get it at all, did they not? No, they didn't get it at all. No, I mean, yesterday, you know, it's really funny when you're in a place like this, right? You really are aware of the elements and nature and the fact that nature dominates human existence up here, right? Because 
you're in the Atlas Mountains. They are extraordinary. And the extraordinary thing about technology is I'm up here watching these donkeys moving apples down to the market on my phone, watching Twitter comments about (laughs) Irish rugby from Tokyo, which is kind of mad, you know. It's, it's Connected world. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's great. And we're shooting this documentary. It's really interesting stuff here. So have you travelled around Morocco much then? Yeah, we started, in, we started in Casablanca, which is, again, a very cool city. I'm going back there tomorrow. We're now in the Atlas Mountains, about 200 miles away from Marrakesh, which you've been to. It's an amazing city, gorgeous Yeah, city. what a cool city uh, We shot is. in Marrakesh yes, the day before yesterday. Extraordinary place. You're in the souk and you're seeing all the spices and the trade. And of course, it's a, it's a lot about economics. So it's, you know, Marrakesh started as a trading center for humans. It was a, it was a slave trading center. And this idea that, you know, basically the first currency that humans had was other humans. That's what we did. We bought and sold ourselves to each other yeah. at the beginning. And then, of course, we, we traded salt for humans because salt was extremely valuable because it obviously dried out any goods so you could transport meats and fishes and la, 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 la. And it's really, really interesting. Of course, you are so aware of Islam. It's everywhere. Yeah. But, you know, the beautiful thing is, well, I want to talk about Johnson now a little, do our little Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we update, have to. Okay? God almighty, what a week but that was. But when you're in the Arab world, it's fascinating to talk to the people about Syria, Iraq, what's going on with America, what's going on with Turkey, what's going on with Russia. And it's a totally different view. We sat up late last night with the crew, drinking Moroccan whiskey, <laughs> drinking mint tea, just sitting sitting around outside, around the fire. It was gorgeous, you know, big blazing fire outside, sitting around talking about the world. It was Yeah, I'd be fascinated to hear about their view of, of the Middle East and, and what's going on in America. Uh, but yeah, but before we kick off, Let's have a quick uh, review of the madness that is Brexit. Okay, so Brexit as it is now. Yeah. After Saturday's vote to postpone the vote. Think about it. So it's a vote to postpone the vote. That happened on Saturday in the Houses of Parliament. I still think, although Johnson is kind of trapped, he probably has a path just about to get all this done. Because if you think about what's happening... You've got to figure out who are Johnson's enemies now. And Johnson's yeah. enemies as of Saturday are his own party, right? And the reason it's Oliver Letwin used to be, Oliver Letwin is, is part of these Tories who don't trust Johnson. They are Tories who don't trust Johnson. Very few people Johnson. do at they this more, stage. Well, that's true. You're absolutely right. But they, they more or less want this deal done. But what they do is they don't want to give Johnson any regal room in order to allow him, if he has to, to declare a hard Brexit and go to the country after the Halloween deadline. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what they're doing now is they're saying, Saturday, we're not going to give you the green light. On Tuesday, we are going to make sure that all the legislation is presented to the parliament, everything. Then we will vote and we will side with you because then we know that you can't shimmy out of this. And all the legislation has to be the withdrawal agreement as signed with the EU last That's pretty sensible though, isn't it? You know, it's a sensible approach to it. Well, given how slippery a customer Johnson is, number (laughs) one, and given number two, how he's beholden to the ERG, the kind of G, what I would call the jihadi Brexiteers, I'm just using jihadi, given given that I'm in this neck of the woods, (laughs) it's probably a sensible thing for them 
to do, which is basically to say, look, we will not give you a carte blanche, but if you produce the withdrawal agreement and all the legislation on Tuesday, we will vote with you. So that means that Johnson was defeated by... The margin now is quite small, John. It's 322 against 306 for him, yes. right? Yeah, so yeah. it's quite small. That's not a total defeat. So basically, those Tory middle ground people voted to close a loophole on Saturday. Yeah. They basically said to him, we'll give you the space in the next 24 hours to change, to come up with all the legislation, and we will side with you. Now, where does it mean? Like, basically, this is this is Theresa May's deal with lipstick. Mm, yeah. This is what yeah. it is. And they were for Theresa May's deal. So they realise now they hold their nose. As I was saying, you know, it's the backstop for slow learners. It's more or less the same deal apart from the Northern Irish yeah. bit. So he's obviously lost the DUP. They're, they're gone now. They're out of the picture. But for Johnson, what is more important is he's lost the DUP but he has totally united the Tory party. Now, that's a huge prize for him because he has taken all the, the Brexit jihadis back into the fold. He said to the middle ground, Lettrell and those guys, look, I'll do this for you. I'll bring forward the legislation. So he's actually, what he's done, he's consolidated. The Tory party was split six or seven yeah. days ago. It's now united, but the price of Tory unity has been abandoning the DUP. It's not abandoned the Northern Irish Union. Yeah, well, that was bound to happen anyway. And now it's a yeah. reality. So ultimately, the Brexiteers have said, we value Brexit more than we value Northern Ireland. And that's a big, big moment in the Conservative and Unionist Party. So that is where we're at. The winners are Johnson and his crew, the clear losers in this are the DUP, but they will fight and fight and fight until the very end because they have to in terms of trying to stop legislation, trying to stop movement forward. But that's what it seems to me. Of course, the full legislation will now be brought forward on Tuesday. And the interesting thing is, and this is where I think he might just have a chance of getting it all through, is that all MPs in the UK are now looking at the election. The clock is ticking for an election mm. in November or December or whenever they decide and they realise that the, the get Brexit done slogan will be very resonant in the ears of the election. And if they are seen not to have or to have at some stage retarded Brexit being done, they will pay at the electorate, which is why Johnson feels that he might be able to pick off a few Labour voters, or a few Labour MPs, etc., the independents, and ultimately he might just get over the line. And I think he might just get over the line. You probably wouldn't have seen it over there, or maybe you have on Twitter, but the scenes, the aerial shots of London yesterday with literally hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. It was an incredible scene. But based on that, where does that leave Labour? Are they in a weakened position now? And also, what is the DUP's next step? Well, I think the first, I think the DUP will float into an irrelevance uh, in UK politics because it's unlikely the next arithmetic in Westminster will have them still as kingmakers. So that's the first thing. And as we said last week, I think the DUP will end up having a the mother and father of all internal rows and they will shaft 
uh, Arlene, but the DUP is not like a political party. It is a sect. So the DUP, so you won't see the public hanging of Arlene Foster. They'll do it behind closed doors. They always do things behind closed doors. <laughs> That's their nature, right? Yeah. So it's not a spectacle, as you would see, as, as will happen with the Labour Party in England. The DUP will go behind closed doors, they'll hunker down, they will change their leader, and they will have a secret ballot, and they will come out with a new leader, and nobody will be none the wiser as to how it happened. But as I said before, it's a fight between the Free Presbyterians and the yeah, Church of Ireland yeah. for the heart and soul of unionism. The Church of Ireland being uh, Donaldson and the Free Presbyterians being Dodds. The interesting thing is the only two senior Church of Ireland figures in the DUP are Arlene Foster, actually, and Geoffrey Donaldson. And because they were Church of Ireland, they both had to seem to be more pure than the Free Presbyterians themselves, which is why they're often regarded as more hardline. Right. But I think their DNA is softer. Right. And I think their DNA will come out, particularly Donaldson's, over the course. When I say softer, he's much more likely to try and be amenable than Dodds, who's very much what we have, we hold, in hardline. So that's the DUP. Yeah. Tell us about Labour, yeah. Uh, Labour is in a terrible, terrible state because Corbyn is a terrible, terrible leader. Absolutely. You know, and it's a a real shame because, you know, the Labour Party in England, if you think about Tony Blair's Labour Party, Tony Blair's Labour Party won three elections with more than 100 seats in each one. That's extraordinary. In a row from what you would describe as the social democratic left, right? You know, this... The, the, the sort of left of centre, social democracy, yeah. like German socialists, whatever. That is where Labour belongs. But what Corbyn has done, a bit like the ERG for the Tory party, is Corbyn has dragged the Labour party to the Marxist yeah. left. Scargill country. Exactly. Now, it's a really, really interesting expression. Like, look at what's happening between the Tories and Labour in England, the right wing and the left wing, right? The right wing is consolidating around a figure who's very flawed, Johnson, but he is one of their own. The left wing is not consolidating around a figure, but is splitting. There's a great expression, which is that in a crisis, the right wing always look for converts and the left wing look for traitors. Yeah. As a general rule. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing because if you look at it, even in America, right, the Republicans, most of them can't stand Trump, but they convert to that small bit of Trump that they can identify with and they jettison their objections for power. Yeah. The Tories are exactly the same. Look at them. The ERG are coming together with Lettons people. They can't stand each other, but power is so important yeah. to them. It's the greater that good they kind of vibe. Convert into the set. Exactly. The left all over the world slightly, it reminds me a little bit of religious people now that I'm in Morocco, you know, who is more pure, right? So the left, rather than consolidate around a divisive figure, they don't look for common ground, they look for traitors. They say, you're not left enough for me. You're not socialist enough for me. You're not Marxist enough for me. And that's exactly what's happening in the UK left right now. And then, of course, you also had all that anti-Semitic nonsense that was going on as well. Well, that will lead us into our next discussion on Israel and the Middle East and yeah. pan-Arabism. And that's all in the mix. See, what, what a segue, Mike, huh? Well, listen, man, we're total pros, my friend, <laughs> even from 2,000 miles away, my dude. But listen, uh, I tell you, no, but it's interesting because Jewish intellectuals 
have always been very, very prominent in the Labour Party. In fact, you can argue that they have been hugely, hugely material in Labour ideology in the UK, or in left of centre, social democratic, Jewish uh, thinkers and politicians, whatever. And it is horrendous to see the Labour Party going against their own people. But this is my back to my idea of traitors versus converts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That the Labour Party now is going against left-wing Jews in England because they believe that left-wing Jews in England deep down still support Israel. And this is horrendous, I think, for English Jewry on the left wing because they've been so prominent over many, many, many years yeah. in the Labour Party. But this is back to this ideological, almost, it's almost biblical, the rows within the left wing. And I've, you know, I've watched this for years, John, the left wing in Ireland always split. For years, when we were kids, you know, there was the Workers' Party and there, there was the Labour left and Labour itself, and they're always shouting and roaring at yeah. each other. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's true, that they could never, they could never coalesce around. Even look, people before profit, and your man Murphy going off in a huffy, a hissy fit two weeks ago and having a new left wing party. And then Labour not being able to, you know, why don't they coalesce around someone like Michael D, who is their spiritual leader? Yeah. All yeah. of them. And say, look, we have more in common. Than yeah, we have absolutely. A kind of a broad left as opposed to ideological. Yeah, and whereas the right are so much better, you know, uh, at actually creating coalitions of the right, whereas the left, you know, and I come back to it, it is like reading scripture. It's <laughs> like what I was saying. You remember the, the Presbyterians and remember the Presbyterians in Portland own Shan's missus yeah, thing, yeah. the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, right? <laughs> Presbyterian church up in the village. Yeah. It's the same thing. They split over ideology, a bit like biblical scholars. We're delighted to announce that the Dublin Podcast Festival have debased their currency profoundly by allowing John and I get on stage on the 28th of November, a Thursday, in Vicar Street for a bit of chat, a bit of economics, a bit of malarkey, and hopefully a wee bit of lateral thinking. Join us if you fancy it. Have a gander at ticketmaster.ie. Dublin Podcast Festival, Thursday, 28th November, Vicar Street. See you there. Okay, Mark, we're going to move on to the Middle East. You know, it's it's kind of horrific after being through the whole Syrian war and everything that there's a new kind of massacre starting. And there's so many elements to this that some of them I understand, some of them I don't. But, you know, the end result is going to be the same. It's, it's, it's a massacre, basically. And especially with Erdogan saying yesterday that if the Kurds in northern Syria don't get out in the next whatever it is, a day or so, he's going to crush their heads. I mean, ugh, you know, it, it's unbelievable. So are people talking about this in Morocco or... Give us a rundown. Give us your, your take on well, it. Well, what you find is when, when I travel in the Arab world, and, you know, I've been quite a, around this neck of the woods quite a bit, right, is that people are not very forthcoming in, in the beginning, yeah. right? Uh, so what basically happened is we I asked the question yesterday, we were chatting in a cafe, and the lad said nothing to me. And... Then we stopped to do a shoot in the middle of the desert. It was actually in the middle of the Sahara, which was really ex- extraordinary. Excellent. And then we were just, you know, we were just sitting after we'd done the piece to cameras, as they call it in this, this game. We were just sitting around waiting for a, a new truck to come and get us. And then we were, when we were beside, on the side of the road, they opened up. Right. Because there was nobody around. And what were they saying? But basically it's quite, look, the Berbers, so we're up in the mountains, right? The Berbers live in the Atlas Mountains, but they don't live here out of choice, right? So it was very interesting. As I always said, the Berbers must have been afraid of something horrific 
in order to flee the plains of Morocco, which are very fertile, mm. and settle up in this most inhospitable place. And of course, with the Berbers, who were the original Moroccans, were fleeing, was the Arabs. Because the Arabs came over here in this massive expansion of the Arab nation out of Saudi Arabia in the 7th century, where all of our, lots of our history about the Crusades yeah, and all that sort yeah, of yeah. stuff is all about. But so <clears throat> if you think about the, the Arabs came out of Saudi Arabia, a very, very violent tribe armed with this extraordinary new religion called Islam yeah. under the Prophet Muhammad. And they come out through Egypt, through Tunisia, through Libya. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Through Algeria, these are the countries we know now, into Morocco. And the, the original people of the Sahara were the Berbers, who were not Islamic, who were not Arabic, who have a totally different language, who have a totally different script. Yeah. And you think, why did they end up in, in the Atlas Mountains? Because they were running away from the Arabs. They were terrified. And they were all subdued here by the Arabs and then converted to Islam in around the 8th century. Interestingly, so too were the Kurds. The Kurds are an Iranian tribe, okay? Yeah. And they were a Zoroastrian religion before they were conquered. So the Arabs come out of Saudi Arabia. They go north towards Iran and they conquer everything in front of them. They go towards Jerusalem. They conquer everything in front of them. They eventually take over under the Ottomans, the uh, Constantinople. They turn it into Istanbul. They destroy the Byzantine Empire, etc., yeah. etc. Et so you know all that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. But they also go to the west and the Berbers and the Kurds have this are joined by the fact that they were converted to Islam in the early part of the Arabic expansion out of Saudi Arabia. Now, what you have is when you talk to the people here, their feeling of proximity to the Syrians, to the Iraqis, is a fraternal Arab-Islamic urge, almost in their heart. But in their head, John, is a post-colonial understanding of what it's like to be conquered by the West. And when I asked them who's at fault, they all said, time after time after time, each one, the, the, the men and the women on the crew, it's the United States' fault. Yeah, yeah. And then I said, well, what do you think? And they all said, and this is really interesting, and I've heard it before in the Arab world, that they believe that in the long term, 
all the Arab nations will be united. Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, all the way through to Saudi Arabia, under one leader, wow. north to Syria and Iraq. And they believe it's interesting that every time an Arab leader emerges, like Nasser yeah, in Egypt yeah. in the 1950s and 60s, like Saddam Hussein yeah. in the 1980s and 90s, with 70s and 80s, and Assad, the Assad father Assad and son Assad, that these are the potential leaders that could unite the Arab world together. And their view was that every time a potential secular Arab emerges, because Saddam was secular, Nasser was secular, Assad was secular, the West intervene to destroy them because their greater fear is pan-Arabism. Now, I'm not positioned to say whether this is right or not, but I, that was the message they were saying yesterday. So what they see is... A, so Nasser in Egypt set up this idea called the Ba'ath Party, yeah. which was the pan-Arabist socialist party. Saddam was part of that movement. Assad was part of that yeah. movement. And what it promised was a secular Arab state fueled, particularly in Iraq and to a degree in Syria, by oil money and oil wealth. And this would create the backdrop for uh, a unified Arab voice in the world which seems to me to make sense. And they were saying, my Arab uh, colleagues yesterday, that every single time this is threatened, the West move to try and destroy the individual leader who emerges. And it's really interesting to listen to them. So they were saying, for example, as Moroccans, they said, we're exactly the same as Algerians. They said, before the French divided the country up, Algeria and Morocco was more or less the same place. And then you think about, there's also a link, John, between Brexit, the Kurds, Syria, okay? Whoa, and it is, th that's a bit of a leap. Well, it's, it is until you think about Go it. Go on, tell me. All of these conflicts, the Syrian conflict, the Iraqi conflict, the Northern Irish conflict to a degree, are caused by lines being drawn in the sand by civil servants in the period 1917 to 1921, yep. because Syria didn't exist as a country before the end of the... So the Ottoman Empire ends in 1918. It has been destroyed from the north by the Russians and the Austrians and the Serbs in the Balkans. Yep. In the south, the British and the French, fueling their own land grab, attacked from the south. Of course, the Irish, with the Brits, attacked from the Dardanelles. Do you remember the, you know, the Wolsey Matilda, the Irish, the Anzacs, yeah, all yeah, get yeah, killed in the Dardanelles? The Russians come around the, the back with the Armenian genocide. The Russians basically trying to take bits of the Ottoman Empire from the other side of the Black Sea. So what you have is the Ottoman Empire gets invaded from four sides. And the Ottoman Empire was probably the most sophisticated, most cultured, most loose empire that we've ever seen, yeah. decentralized, where the Kurds actually lived reasonably happily with the Arabs, the Jews in Palestine lived reasonably happily with the Arabs, the Alawites lived reasonably happily with the other Arabs, the Christians in Lebanon lived, because the Ottomans had this extraordinary thing, was they'd say, we'll pick the top guy of each tribe, let you do your thing, you run your people, we'll just take taxes for you, and with those taxes, we will form an Ottoman army, and the Ottoman army will protect the boundaries of the empire. This ends up fracturing towards the end of the First World War. And what happens is two things emerge. The Ottoman Empire 
disintegrates into various new states, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, all these places, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, none of these places existed before 1918. These are all new invented countries. That's the one thing that happened. But also what also happened was the Turkey that remained, and think about Turkey lost all its uh, protectorates in the Balkans as well, but the tiny, tiny Turkey, given what the Ottoman Empire was, the small Turkey that remained became deeply nationalistic, deeply Turk, deeply secular under Kamal Ataturk. That's why they kicked out all the Jews, they kicked out all the Greeks. You know, Istanbul was a largely Greek city and the Turks kicked them all out. So there was this kind of nationalist, ethnic cleansing frenzy, which was the origin of the Turkish Republic. And of course, the Armenians suffered very badly in this in 1918. But of course, the Kurds were in the running for a new state. So the key moment of all this is called Sykes-Picot. Sykes-Picot, Sykes was an English civil servant and Picot was a French civil right. servant. And they sat down in 1917 and they drew lines in the sand. And the Brits said, we'll have Iraq and we'll have Saudi Arabia and we'll have the United Arab Emirates. We'll have that bit. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, what was in there? Oil. oil. Yeah. The Brits wanted all the oil, right? And they said, you French people, you can have whatever you want. The French said, oh, well, we'll have, we'll have the Levant. We'll have Lebanon. We'll have Syria. And that'll be our sphere of yeah. influence. And, of course, the Brits took Palestine. And in the Balfour Agreement in 1917, the Brits promised the Jews a state yeah. in Palestine, which is the, where Israel starts as an entity. It doesn't end up an entity until 1948, but the idea of an Israeli Jewish state in Palestine was a British idea, of course. And of course, what is this all about, John? It's about drawing lines in the sand, drawing borders, dividing people. What do they do between Fermanagh and Leitrim, between Derry and Donegal, between Armagh and and Lad? Exactly the same thing. We'll actually do little sort of plebiscites in our heads. How many of that crowd live over there? How many of that crowd live there? Let's draw a line and we'll create a new country called Northern Ireland. We'll create a new country called yeah. Syria. We'll create a new country called Iraq. We'll create a new country called Lebanon. We'll create a new country called Palestine. And then we'll split the Palestinians between Transjordan, Jordan, Israel. That's right. But it's all the same. What we're seeing now is the 100th year revenge of Sykes-Picot. And ultimately, when you draw lines in the sand, certain nations are going to be on the wrong side. And the people in the Middle East who were on the worst end of all this are the Kurds. Because the Kurds were promised a state in 1918. And that was taken away from them in 1922. Why? Because Ataturk, the new leader of Turkey, the new republic that emerged from the Ottoman Empire, said, there is no way that Turkey is going to stand by being divided anymore. Because given that Turkey had been divided, 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 And they drew a line in the sand. The Turks said, this ain't going to happen. The Brits backed down. And the Kurds, who are an Iranian tribe, they're an Iranian ethnic minority, end up scattered between Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. Yeah, it's it's actually really tragic, Mark, because, you know, they're not an insignificant group of people. There's about 35 million of them who've been effectively shafted. That's... Effectively, 35 million homeless people. 
Well, you were the one who worked on BBC World Service on the Kurdish station, so you tell me. Well, yeah, I knew a few Kurds in London. They're an interesting bunch, actually. They're a very strong sense of identity. But while they were kind of very traditional, they were, they were also kind of progressive in many ways and quite different to other groups from the region. Like, for instance, they, they while they were mostly Muslim, they also included Zoroastrians and Christians and stuff. But the interesting thing about them was that women play a really important role in, in society. Like apparently in the autonomous, the Kurdish autonomous region in, in northern Iraq, there's something like 20 to 30% of women in the governing body. And then, of course, there's the Kurdish women fighters, the militia who are on the front line against ISIS, who are really highly revered. But anyway, listen, I want to ask you about Russia. Now that Trump in his great and unmatched wisdom and brilliantly (laughs) strategic move to pull out or run away from the region. It kind of leaves Russia as the main power brokers now and gives them a really strong foothold. How is that going to turn out? What's your take on that? Okay, so let's, let's go up to exactly what has happened in the last two weeks. In the last 10 days, the entire map of the Middle East has been redrawn courtesy of Donald's great and unmatched <laughs> yeah. wisdom, which himself, right? So think about who the winners are, right? So the winners in this game, Turkey, Russia, Iran, Assad, and ISIS. You can't get a more anti-American coalition yeah. than that, with the, with the exception of Turkey. So Turkey has always been America's biggest ally after Israel in the Middle East. Turkey is the biggest NATO army outside the United States. People forget that it was Turkey that defused the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, yeah. That basically, you know, that Kennedy traded missiles in Turkey for Khrushchev's missiles in Cuba. So Turkey has always been America's ally and ballast in the region. And that is changing. What is happening now is Turkey is changing sides. That is the story. Yeah. And Turkey is, again, a massive, massive power in the region. A Turkish friend of mine said to me, I was in Istanbul about two years ago, and she said, very simple, she was talking about the region and the Arabs. She said, look, David, there's only two real tribes here, okay? There's the Turks and the Persians, the Iranians. She goes, the Arabs, they're kind of Johnny-come-latelys. And you know what? When they run out of oil, they'll be yeah. gone. And it was really interesting. She was like saying, look, we're the old people here. They're the Johnny-come-latelys. Ourselves and the Persians have been around for thousands of years. And Turkey was always an antidote to Iran because the Turks and the Persians don't like each other. Turkey was always, and this is the interesting, an enemy of Russia. So you go back to your Ottoman history, Russia has always been an enemy of Turkey. That's always been the way. And therefore, Russia had to try and figure out over the years, how do you get beyond Turkey to have an influence in the region. So if you think, you know, we call it the Middle East, right? Yeah. But if you're in Moscow, you're in Moscow, what we call the Middle East is directly south of you, directly to the south, okay? So you draw a straight line down from Moscow and you hit Damascus. So it's the south of Russia. So the Russians have always been interested in the region. I'm going back before the First World War. Sure, sure. Before, going back to empire. And of course, what your man has done in his great non match wisdom, is he has totally and utterly redrawn the map, right? The map up until two weeks ago 
was the United States kept a sliver of troops in northern Syria, which allowed them have a stake in the final negotiations. Once you take those troops out, you have no stake. Therefore, he has acquiesced Turkey going in with this fictitious idea of a safe zone. But all the Turks want to do is make sure in the ultimate negotiations, what happens after the Syrian war is ended, where their position will be. So I think like a lot of these things in these wars, armies go in at the very end of war, they take a piece of territory so that in the negotiations, they can say we're giving it back and they look good. The Russians, of course, are the major winners because Russia backs Assad. The Turks forced the Kurds. And remember, it's the Kurds who killed ISIS. The Kurds destroyed ISIS. Not the Americans, not the Brits, the Kurds. Yeah. They were also the number one enemy of Assad. Assad was the number one enemy of the West and of the United States. Now, what you find is Assad has the Kurds in his pockets because the Americans have forced the Kurds to actually do a deal with Assad. So Assad wins. Yeah. Also, who backs Assad? Iran. Who's America's biggest enemy in the region? Iran. Iran win. Obviously, then, think about the big thing. Who backs Iran? Russia. Who's America's biggest enemy in the area? Russia. Russia wins. And lastly, ISIS prisoners have all been released. So they win. So you have this extraordinary situation where a tiny American force in the region allowed the Americans still to have a stake. Donald has pulled them out. His enemies have won. The Turks feel so confident that they wouldn't even meet Mike Pence last week. Yeah, Think about it. Yeah. They said, no, we, we're not even interested. And of course... But the they did, hang on, they, 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 they actually did meet Pence. Oh, they did, they did. But I'm just talking about the, the, the choreography. They did eventually yeah. because they had to. But I mean, but the choreography is that... With stony faces. The United... they, they met with really stony faces, if you ever saw the, the shots of it. And of course, I didn't see them, but Erdogan is totally emboldened now. And of course, think about what Erdogan needs. Erdogan lost the greatest prize in Turkey. He lost Istanbul, the mayor of Istanbul, about two months ago. Oh, that's ago. right, yeah. And they have voted again, right? So Erdogan needs a war to whip up nationalism because he's losing, because the Turkish economy is... Uh, after having borrowed huge amounts of money for, from Qatar. The Turks now are in a huge economic crisis. So Erdogan is using the Kurds to deflect from economic attention at home because he knows he's just lost Istanbul. I mean, this is all transparent politics that unfortunately our dear leader over in the United States with his great and unmatched wisdom didn't seem to figure out. And of course, who loses? Like always, John. And this is what I want to come back to Brexit the small guy loses out. The Kurds, right? The small country, the people with no ally at the top table. And an interesting point, John, is that what we saw in the last week with Ireland and Britain and the EU was the EU stood behind Ireland. The small guy, if we hadn't had the EU having our back, the Brits would have bulldozed all over us with respect to Brexit. The Kurds show what happens when small countries don't join a big club. You get squashed between Turkey, Russia, Syria, America, Iran. Mm. What last week showed is the power of loose federations, communities, 
in terms of protecting the interests of small countries. And I think it's a really interesting lesson. But so I look at the Kurds and I think this is the nation that should have a country or the, the nation that should have a country who don't. The nation that looked to have a country in the negotiations that would have ended the Syrian war and the Iraqi conflict, frankly, which is still festering. They were looking as if they would have nationhood. And what has happened is the big countries have shut the door on them. And that's a lesson in geopolitics that none of us should forget. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. A huge welcome to Gary Steingart, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, back then, this was, you know, the Reagan era, so the era of, uh, everyone called me the Red Gerbil uh, because <laughs> they thought I was this communist kid, and I was like, no, we worship Reagan now. Um, it was so bad that I had to pretend I wasn't born in Leningrad, that I was born in East Berlin. <laughs> when you try to convince a school full of Jews that you're actually a German, you know things aren't going well. <laughs> If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.